Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione, and uh, I'm joined by Mark Chenoweth. And uh, the first topic we have to discuss today is the uh, student loan forgiveness of the Biden administration. Uh, Some of you will remember that uh, the administration came up with a plan to use the HEROES Act to forgive uh, student loans. And this wasn't passed by Congress, as we've discussed. This was simply uh, the administration saying they could do this. And what we found out uh, is that uh, they are going to push it all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, this, uh, a little background, this um, uh, program has been stalled because the courts have stayed uh, any of this loan forgiveness. And as the courts have stayed this loan forgiveness, um, it has gone to the Supreme Court. And this week, they had argument uh, in the case uh, that we here at NCLA put in a amicus brief. And because uh, we have one of these cases as well that's waiting on whatever they're going to do. And the uh, argument in the court, uh, let's, I thought the government had a pretty bad day, but Mr. Mark listened to it. And um, what were your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the uh, I think that the the government had a uh, maybe a better day than they expected to have, but I wouldn't say uh, that they had a terrific day. And I guess, uh, John, I wanted to to, to maybe start uh, by saying that there are really a couple of different things that you have to look at uh, in this case. And I wanted to maybe set aside the biggest issue in the case. To go to standing? That would be standing because we could talk for this entire hour about standing because the the justices asked a ton of questions about it. And the government might think, hey, that's a good sign for them that so much time was spent uh, on the standing issue. And look, maybe they'll be right. Maybe it'll turn out that the court will dodge the issue and it will will decide the case on standing and kick this down. I, I tend to not think that on such a huge issue that the court is going to to uh, to whiff, but uh, but that remains to be seen. But if we set aside the standing issue, and we can come back to that if you want to, there are really three other things that uh, that Solicitor General Preligar uh, focused on. She was saying that secretaries of education from the Trump and Biden administrations had already invoked the Heroes Act to suspend payment of principal and interest during the pandemic. This, they, they referred to this repeatedly as forbearance uh, in the oral argument. And so she says, this is just a further extension of that unchallenged authority. Well, as you mentioned, John, NCLA filed an amicus brief in the case. And the idea that this is unchallenged authority is not true. We, in our amicus brief, explained why forbearance is also unlawful. So I thought it was interesting that apparently the Solicitor General didn't read our amicus brief uh, and none of the justices challenged her on that 
uh, either. But she says that student loan borrowers will be worse off without the relief of the program because ending forbearance without it will cause defaults and delinquencies greater than what occurred pre-pandemic. And so Secretary Cardona crafted debt relief to ensure borrowers would not be worse off in relation to their uh, student loans. We can come back to that, John, but I thought what was really odd about that claim, she seems to be saying, in order to prevent people from defaulting on their loans, we're forgiving their loans, which is a really odd logic when you think about it. it. Well, that is exactly it. They, the the problem, of course, is they they have this loan debt and and pay it back. Uh, but that's a problem for every kind of loan in the country. And and um, I I I think though that the the real um, question on that about how it was unchallenged is I mean I I thought there was a little bit of hey it's not fair. <laughs> Everybody did this. We just do a little bit more, and and I have to come here and argue about it. Yeah, well, and and I and I do think when they got into the forbearance issue a little bit later in the in the oral argument that uh, Justice Thomas, for instance, said, well, maybe that fits a little bit more comfortably under this uh, you know, wave and modify wave or modify language uh, in the statute. And that's really the the other question that was paramount for the justices was what is the the best reading of the text and the the solicitor general's claim is that the best reading of the of the plain text expressly authorizes the secretary of education to quote unquote waive or modify uh quote any title four provision in an emergency and so she says well this might be broad authority that congress is giving but it's not unclear authority they've essentially uh given the keys to the kingdom to the secretary of education and loan forgiveness is a usual form of debt relief. So the fact that it's not mentioned anywhere uh, in uh, in the Heroes Act uh, isn't doesn't mean anything. There are other authorities that the and statutes that apply to the Department of Education where loan forgiveness is a possibility, and the the Congress wouldn't have been surprised. She said a couple of times uh, well, to see the Secretary uh, acting in the heartland of his authority and consistent with the Heroes Act's purpose and just forgiving. A half a trillion dollars uh, of student loans. I thought I somebody quoted in one of the commentary on this uh, that Scalia had said, "Well, that modify you could say that the uh, French revolutionaries modified the aristocracy by putting them through the guillotine." So, <laughs> and, and right, I right. thought it was a lot of you. I thought that was a it was a regular funny Scalia line, but uh, you know, modify can go a little far if you use it that way. Modify can go a little far, and and Chief Justice Roberts uh, brought up Scalia's quip and and the, the from the MCI case and said, "Look, what, you're talking about pretty significant changes here." And she said, "Well, first of all, Congress had had given those authorities, and that this wasn't just modify; this was waive or modify, and that waive or modify uh, is is broader language." Now, when it came to be his turn, Solicitor General Campbell from Nebraska, uh, and there was a little oddity in this oral argument, John, that almost the entire argument revolved around a Missouri entity, Bohila. Uh, and yet it was the Nebraska Solicitor General who was doing uh, the oral argument. And I, I assume that what? there are sort of yeah. behind the scenes reasons for that. But it yeah, was, uh, I, I was wondering that as well, because there's the, this Mohila question where Mohila is a state educational entity that did not sue. The Missouri sued for it. And there was a ton of argument there that, that, um, that, you know, that isn't enough, that the state has to have direct injury, not from this company that didn't sue. I don't know how that's going to fly. I mean, I thought 
I thought if if they have if they're a state and they have this sovereign entity that they own as a sovereign this entity and they're injured, I think that should be enough. But I don't know. So you want to get into standing? <laughs> yeah, I think you have. I think you have to a little bit. I mean, that is that is. No, I mean best. this soon you want to get into standing, but that's okay. Oh, we can okay. we can jump to standing. I I just uh, uh, to me it's the least interesting part of the case because it's uh, it's it's very hard to predict what the justices are going to do or what the logic is going to be. I think that I think you intimate John what the what the straightforward answer is, which is to say look, 77% of Mohila's revenue comes from servicing direct loans. About half of the, those loans will be discharged under the Secretary of Education's program. That's going to cut Mohila's operating revenue from direct loans in half. So Mohila is going to have less money as a result of that. Uh, to give to the state of Missouri. And there's this back and forth about this Lewis and Clark fund and and Mohila hasn't donated to that for 15 years. But uh, the Solicitor General said, well, but, but wait a minute. The reason they have not donated to that for 15 years is because there's been an ongoing negotiation with Mohila. And under that, under that negotiation, uh, Mohila has been giving $65 million, not a small sum of money, to a different state scholarship fund. And so that's so that's what its, pay, its annual payments into that scholarship fund uh, won't happen anymore or won't happen to the same dollar level as they've been happening in the past. That's the, that's the claim of, of the state of Missouri and that they can stand in uh, as, uh, for Mohila and represent Mohila and complain about the fact that these funds won't be there to fund uh, scholarships for Missouri students uh, going forward. I think that's the easy, the easiest answer. Uh, maybe the second easiest answer is: Look, this is a state instrumentality. The state can speak directly for it. Uh, it was created by the state. It's doing public activities. End of end of the story. And and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett seemed like she might be uh, looking for an answer that simple. Uh, John. Oh, good. I I that's she asked about that. She did. Uh, there, but there was lots of pushback from uh, from other justices. Uh, Justice Jackson asked if there are offsetting fees that might allow Mohila to go ahead and and pay its money, and and might Mohila just go ahead and spend all the money it has to to sort of make good on this one payment it makes, at, you know, and sort of disregard all of the other financial obligations that Mohila might have. Uh, the Solicitor General, I think, rightly said it's hard to think there'd be enough. Uh, offsetting fees to make up for that. It's hard to believe that Mohila would be able to make the payments uh, if, uh, you know, if its revenues are cut in half. Uh, Justice Kagan talked about the fact that Mohila can sue and be sued. It could have shown up to to complain about this if it wanted to. It didn't. Uh, and that SCOTUS usually doesn't allow standing in the shoes of another by third parties. Uh, what Solicitor General Campbell said in response is that the government is a little bit different and that there are federal cases, and John, you may be familiar with these cases, I am not. One case called Cherry Cotton Mills and another case called Erickson. And he said that those cases have allowed the federal government to assert interests of federally created corporations. And all that the states are asking for uh, is for Missouri to likewise be able to assert the interests of a state created uh, corporation uh, here. When you think of it that way, it doesn't sound like a very extensive increase, if any increase at all, in this in the you know in the doctrine of standing. And in fact, Justice Alito pressed 
Solicitor General Prelegar on this point because she was saying, well, you'd be, you'd be doing something unprecedented if you recognize standing here. And he said, well, we've never weighed in on this either way. It's going to be unprecedented no matter which way we come out on this. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni talking about the oral argument at the Supreme Court this week in the Biden v. Nebraska case about student loans. Uh, John, the, we I think we tied tied up the the standing question uh, there at the end of the previous segment. But there's there's one major topic uh, that we have not gotten to yet, which is applying the major questions doctrine. And Solicitor General Prelegar was was very insistent on the plain text reading of the statute, even though it has breathtaking scope, uh, because she then wants to say that applying the major questions doctrine to override clear text would put the judiciary in the position of overriding the will of Congress in order to deny critical relief. And she did not, I mean, she got some sympathy for that position from uh, from the justices appointed by by Democrats, but she did not get much sympathy from justices appointed by Republican presidents uh, on that point. I think there was some sympathy for her reading of the text, but the idea that the major questions doctrine would be shunted aside wasn't something that I heard a lot of uh, of support for, uh, starting with Chief Justice Roberts, who uh, jumped in pretty early on uh, to, to say, uh, to, to, to make the point that you made about modification. Uh, but he also uh, seems to think that Congress could easily be surprised by the idea that borrower relief specified in the HEROES Act would lead to total uh, loan forgiveness. And Prelegar tried, tried, tries to take the case of forgiving a single soldier's debt under the HEROES Act, and then tries to say, well, if that forgiveness is possible, if you admit that, that the text of the statute allows that one soldier's debt uh, to be forgiven, then our program has to be allowed too, because this is just a you know a, an extension of that same uh, principle. And I think that is where uh, you know that is where the major questions doctrine comes into play. Justice Sotomayor picked up on the mention of the of the half a trillion dollars and asked if if that alone made this a major question. And Prelegar said, no, it can't just be economic. She offered additional factors why uh, why this case is not in major questions doctrine territory. And one of the things she said, John, is that this is the administration of benefits, not a regulatory action that impinges on individual liberty. Uh, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Uh, Justice Alito wasn't buying that. He kept asking if there was some sort of, uh, he said, look, the separation of powers still comes into play. And and it's not as though in benefits programs, Congress says, well, a trillion here and a trillion there doesn't really you know, doesn't really bother us. Uh, so So he did not see a distinction as to whether the doctrine would come into play in the benefits context versus the regulatory uh, context. But the Solicitor General was trying uh, for that distinction. Huh. But I, I, 
I guess, you know, given the makeup of the Supreme Court, she, you, you got to go with textualism, don't you? I mean, where's she going to go? Well, arbitrary and capricious is where she went. She she tried uh, to say essentially that, you know, if I'm going to lose this case, I want to lose it on arbitrary and capricious grounds, not on a statutory interpretation of the HEROES Act that says that that the Secretary of Education can never do this or that the major questions doctrine would prevent the Secretary of Education from enacting such a program. She would prefer for the court to say, well, the secretary didn't make sufficient findings here. He didn't tailor the program sufficiently. Uh, the lines he drew were somehow arbitrary and capricious. And therefore, uh, the secretary gets a do-over, send it back, and we'll try to to tidy up the program a little bit, maybe cut it back a little bit and and try again. Uh, if they, you know, if they strike down the program and say, look, the HEROES Act, the text of the HEROES Act does not allow loan forgiveness, then they can't go back, at least not under at least not under the, the HEROES Act. Uh, Justice uh, Justice Kagan raised a few statutory arguments about whether uh, the, the relief was quote-unquote necessary or whether maybe it made borrowers better off. And she was on board with the idea that these were arbitrary and capricious sorts of inquiries, not statutory interpretation uh, arguments. And so obviously uh, uh, Preliger readily agreed with with Kagan about that, and she says, you know, in a world where the statute tolerates overbreath and allows class wide relief, which I don't know that that was stipulated by the states, John. It wasn't stipulated at oral argument. I I don't remember seeing that in the briefs. But in any event, uh, she said, assuming class wide relief is allowed, the the question is justification of the line drawing that took place and all the secretaries noting of the tremendous financial impacts of the pandemic are enough from her perspective to justify the lines he drew for arbitrary and capricious purposes, which if you're in an arbitrary and capricious world, John, then, you know, that is a lower standard that, that the secretary would have to meet. Yeah. Although I will say this, is that like an APA argument? Yes. Well, they would much rather lose on the APA than anything. And I can see Kagan going there if she can get five. They would rather lose on the APA. The, the interesting thing here, though, is that under the HEROES Act, because this is an emergency authority, you don't have to go through notice and comment uh, rulemaking. And, you know, maybe we should touch briefly on, you know, there's so much we still haven't talked about from the Biden v. Nebraska case, but maybe we should touch briefly uh, on the Department of Education v. Brown case, which was the second case uh, argued, John, because that's where, where, where that issue uh, came up, that essentially what the what the Brown plaintiffs are saying is, is look, we were we're part of the 5% that was excluded from benefit uh, under this program. And we think that if, if this rule had gone through notice and comment rulemaking, we would have been able to comment and we would have pointed out uh, certain aspects of the rule that would have led the secretary to include us, sort of broaden the program and include us within uh, the program. But because they went under the HEROES Act where they don't have to, to do this, uh, we were excluded. And so what they're saying is essentially there's authority under a different statute, the Higher Education Act, to do some sort of loan forgiveness like what he's done. But if the secretary had gone under the Higher Education Act, he would have had to go through notice and comment rulemaking. It would have taken a lot longer. Um, maybe the president wouldn't have gotten the political benefit of a quick uh, loan forgiveness sort of rollout before the midterm elections. Uh, and so he didn't do that. He he went through uh, the Heroes Act instead, 
uh, but that that's not allowed. And there was a lot of, of back and forth over whether that sort of bank shot kind of complaint is even something that can be raised. I mean, forget about, so there's a standing implication there too, right? Do you even have standing to challenge what happened here when you're talking about a different statute? That was, there was a lot of back and forth on standing. I think that there was more skepticism toward the standing of the Brown plaintiffs than there was the standing of the states in the Biden v. Nebraska case. And, and there's a conflict, right? The, the states are saying this is all an illegal action, and they're saying we weren't included in the illegal action. Well, and, and I think it was Justice Sotomayor who said, this is a little strange what you're doing here. You're essentially <laughs> trying to say that you want the program expanded, and the way to expand the program is to eliminate it entirely. And, <laughs> and you're just assuming that the secretary is going to come back with a different program that includes you uh, if you do that. So I mean, I think she's wise to the fact that the that the folks who are challenging this uh, maybe don't have the best interests of loan forgiveness in mind. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, that 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 came out that that the tenor of of some of the questions, I think, betrayed some skepticism on the part of the justices that these particular plaintiffs were really all that exercised about expanding the program and maybe once it was uh, abolished, they would be happy to just sort of end the story uh, there. Um, but uh, but I think maybe one thing we need to talk about, John, that we haven't talked about yet is uh, Justice Kavanaugh, because, uh, as you know, one of my favorite topics, uh, in this case, he seemed to agree with the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas that Congress could have said cancellation, as they've said in other statutes, but they didn't. That text isn't in the HEROES Act. And so he said that that we're well, he asked, he said, look, this looks like an old statute with general language and a massive new program that it smacks of the sort of Brown and Williamson UR line of of major questions, doctrine cases. And he asked, why doesn't this fit that line? And Prelegar offered that that this new program is consistent with the purpose of the HEROES Act, that Congress said all provisions could be waived or modified and that the secretary wasn't acting outside of his subject matter lane. So when you have the the CDC dealing with an eviction moratorium that's a housing policy, maybe that's not in the CDC's lane. But here you're talking about student loans and the Secretary of Education. That's his lane, and that's the core of his expertise. And so she felt like we were out of major questions doctrine territory for that reason. Uh, but Kavanaugh did not seem uh, completely convinced about that. He he ended with sort of a big picture question about the court's finest hours being. Uh, when they had pushed back on executive assertions of emergency authority. And I think he's thinking like of the steel seizure case in the 50s uh, during the Korean War, for example. But Prelegar said there's less reason to be worried about executive power in the benefits context. And and John, uh, Justice Kagan said, well, we worry about executive power uh, when Congress hasn't given it to them. But when Congress has given it to them, then it's OK. And I thought, wait, what? What, what constitution is she reading? <laughs> that. That's not the separation of powers is a guarantee for the citizens. It's not it's not the case that when the executive branch and the legislative branch team up and say something's OK, uh, that everybody else has to move to the sidelines. That's not uh, just because the Congress is OK with handing legislative power over to the executive branch and combining those separate powers under one entity, as this statute appears to do, John. Uh, that doesn't mean that that's not a separation of powers problem or that everybody else doesn't get to complain. I think that that's, uh, uh, I, I thought that that was an unfortunate sort of 
sort of thing. So I guess maybe time for some predictions, John. We've got about a minute left. All right. uh, I I predict uh, final standing for the states is more likely than for the individuals. I predict that uh, the major question do- doctrine rides again. The amount of money here is ginormous. The chief is obviously bothered by it. Kavanaugh is bothered by it. Uh, if you have them on board, then I, I don't know that there'll be much explicating of the doctrine because this seems so much like the previous cases. Uh, the major difference is that this statute is the Department of Education's to administer, but I don't think they're going to make this change about the benefits context. I don't think the secret- that the Solicitor General is going to get her wish to lose on uh, arbitrary and capricious grounds. I don't think the court will reach the appropriations clause question. We didn't even get to that. Uh, But I think the Chief Justice will write the opinion and assign it to himself. We'll see. 